You are now listening to the new voice of reason, Down the Middle, a political podcast with Justin Siegel and Rob Leifer, the fastest growing moderate political podcast in the nation, a podcast about politics, current events, and culture through a lens of moderation, measuredness, and common ground. So sit back and prepare yourself for two guys who prefer intermittent, moderate change over revolution. Two guys who believe diversity of thought is our greatest strength. Are you prepared? Okay, here are your hosts, Justin Siegel and Rob Leifer. All right, welcome listeners to a very important special edition of the podcast. It is... Our season finale. It's like waiting for Grey's Anatomy. I don't know what's going to happen. It's going to be crazy. Are they going to kill the Doctor Riz? I don't know. We just You're going to have to wait and find out. I hope there's not a crazy cliffhanger, though. That's Oh, I hate yeah. those. You're right. I know, I know. So this is episode 21. We are officially legal, aren't we, Jay? Yeah, mazel tov. We can yeah. drink. Thank you. We have, we, are, we have made it to 21 episodes. This is the last episode of season one of the Down the Middle podcast. We are so thankful for all of you who have helped this uh, podcast grow yes, and yes. make it what it is today. We are going to be taking next week off. It is election week, as you all know, and uh, we feel like the dust needs to settle. Things need to work out how they're going to work out. We're all a little bit burnt out on talking about the election, so we figured a week off to let the dust settle come back fresh with season two a lot more ideology next season we're gonna be yeah let's take a nap maybe some naps we need we need a reset we need a reset so this is the season finale and what is it titled jay it is titled oh my word it's almost the third which is accurate it's true it's very very true all right so um let's get right into it this is going to be a i think this is going to be a pretty short and sweet episode right to the point we got uh you know, some special stuff to give you, given the fact that it's election week. So, um, yeah, Jay, without any further ado, let's go right into Honest Dave's housekeeping hangouts. Go. When he growed up this tiny babe, folks all called him Honest Abe. Abraham, Abraham. All righty, Jay. So we have been reminding you guys for many weeks now about yes. the first quadrennial down the middle live stream that is happening on election night, November the 3rd. Now, unfortunately, there was a slight wrench that was thrown into our plans. Jay, why don't you explain it? It was a thrown wrench. So yeah. we, we thought we were going to be together for this. We were going to be at the house, you know, with uh, Riz's kids running around and all kinds of craziness. And most importantly, Riz cooking paella. Yeah. But unfortunately, I have to be somewhere to record an album with our good buddy, uh, Professor Mark M. Cogman. Not just our good buddy, yeah. but our podcast contributor, Mark yeah. M. Cogman. Yeah. Best friend of the pot. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yes, I'll be right in the fire in Oakland. Hopefully I won't die. Uh, but point is, we won't be together. So yeah. we were going to stream this on our Facebook page anyway, but now we will stream this from two different locations. On our Facebook page, beginning at 6 p.m. PST, the link to the to the broadcast is in all our bios. We'll give you plenty of reminders of where to go, but it's going to be really exciting. We're going to cover uh, the election coverage. We're going to cover the coverage. Cover the coverage, yes. That's what we do. Yeah, uh, so it's not going to be the entire election night because that's gonna that would be kind of annoying for us to do it. Like the whole point was that we were going to be together and uh, eating paella. 
the paella thing is hilarious but that's uh, all it's kind of yeah. all i wanted it, yeah it seriously but that that didn't end up working out so we're gonna do we're gonna give you an hour or so probably yeah of our analysis maybe we'll do more we'll see how it's going um we'll but it's gonna it be out. fun it's gonna yeah it's gonna be fun so we hope you guys join us for that uh the next point uh we have to make here is that i have uh purposely written down that i need to scold all of our listeners because we know that a lot of people listened to episode 20 last week and we specifically asked for people to engage with us on the topic of the day, which is about the internet and free speech, and we did not get one engagement. No, not one. So we were a little bit disappointed. Yeah, we gotta give you a slap on the wrist. Yes. Now, we know that people are uh, sometimes uncomfortable with that stuff. You could do it anonymously. You could send us an email. Whatever you want to do, the instructions were there. You now have two weeks to respond. We still want to hear from you guys. We know you're listening. We see the metrics. So uh, you can't fool us. You can't fool us, Jay. No, I can't fool us at all. We know. We see you. Next, congratulations to the Los Angeles Dodgers. This has been a great year for Los Angeles sports, hasn't it, Jay? For everyone except for Justin Turner, yes. This has been a great year. Yes, Justin Turner uh, ruined it last night um, by coming out of the field and giving every single person in Texas COVID. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, yeah, more on that, I'm sure, is going to come via the media. But uh, yeah, it was very exciting. It was an exciting game. And uh, we are glad that they won. So congratulations. Double champions. And and each time we've rioted. It's true. And (laughs) the truth is, I've been waiting. I've lived here, what, 16, 17 years now? I've waited all that time to see the Dodgers win. They haven't won for 32 years, so it's pretty exciting. Yeah, you Um, can't even celebrate. You couldn't even go to a game. It's true. We couldn't go to a game, and uh, we couldn't go out and get drunk or anything. But, you know, hopefully we did some of that at home. So there you go. Indeed. Lastly, Jay, we have some products, and it's it's the uh, it's the season finale. So why don't you uh, tell everyone what they need to do before we come back for next season? You got it. And more than the season finale, it's getting to be around the time when you're going to be shopping for Christmas. Yeah. And since that's the case, we have some amazing products that you should put on your Christmas lists for all your friends and family. We got baby onesies. We got mugs, travel mugs, regular mugs for at-home coffee at home use. We got masks in case you feel like going out to a restaurant. Mm -hmm. Uh, We got all kinds of stuff. Honestly, we got really cool t-shirts. We got sweatshirts. We have everything you could possibly ask for. It's a great logo. It's me and Riz holding up signs, talking about moderate change, and uh, you're going to love it. Gonna love it. Do it. Do it for Christmas. Do it before we come back for uh, season two of the Down the Middle podcast. It's going to be a good time had by all with all of our products being worn outside inside and everywhere else that you go in the world (laughs) (laughs) all righty let's get going with the show jay Uh, moving right along we got a listener question this week so i believe that calls for our favorite segment your favorite segment what is it called jay we care a lot go All right. We care a lot. Uh, We got an interesting question this week from uh, what I think is probably both of our favorite uh, usernames yet. Is this a new user? It's a new user, and their name is Everything is Dumb. And uh, (laughs) I have to agree. Yes. And in fact, that could have been either of us, because Justin and I are constantly saying everything is dumb, and everyone (laughs) is dumb. Yep. Including us. Yeah. 
<laughs> so that question uh, is for you, Riz. Big shock to big everybody shock listening. There. Big shock there. Okay. Uh, the question is, just started listening from episode one and really loving it. Could Riz please go into detail as to what a liberal against leftism is? I am intrigued and think I may also be one, but want to get all the details first before I join. Thanks. All right, here we go. Everyone relax. To, you know, grab uh, your favorite beverage. This is going to be a while, I have a feeling. <laughs> so um, when this question came in, I uh, I was looking at it at the discourse, and I thought I would just sort of flub through it and uh, give a general uh, description of what I believe being a liberal against leftism means. And then last night, I sat down around midnight just to put some some things to paper, and I was there till like two thirty three in the morning, <laughs> and realized that I was writing sort of a dissertation on liberal against leftism, um, and what that means. So uh, I think it's actually a pretty good thing because I think I, I think I really got it all out, and That's I great. said everything I needed to say about it, and I think a lot of you will relate to it. So here we go. There is a vast distinction between liberalism and leftism, and the two terms should not be conflated. First off, a liberal against leftism is for open discussion and debate on all subject matters, even when he or she may disagree with the person he or she is debating. Therefore, a liberal against leftism would never need a safe space to cope with ideas they don't like. This means no limits on the First Amendment, and speech that you don't like does not equal violence unless it is specifically calling for or advocating for violence. Moreover, a liberal against leftism believes that one of the main duties of government is to protect our right to say what we want and not to tell us what we can and cannot say, as many leftists would like for it to do. On that end, a liberal against leftism rejects the leftist cancel culture movement, whereby we are encouraged to judge someone by the standards of this very moment rather than the standards of the day in which that person existed. Leftism is almost like a religion, where one must show fealty to the cause, but unlike the great religions of the world, there is no repentance for sin and there is no forgiveness. One who has ever engaged in something that falls outside of today's leftist standards is ousted and never given an opportunity to return. It is because of this that a liberal against leftism not only rejects the premise that one should lose their stature in life because of something they said or ideas they held 20 years ago, but also rejects the notion that we should judge cultural and political icons by the standards of the day with no adjustments made for the time and place in which they lived. This also includes the especially important idea that we should honor cultural and political icons for their great accomplishments and not diminish those accomplishments because of things they may have engaged in that are reprehensible by today's standards. No, this does not mean that we should give Donald Trump a pass for all of his various flaws just because he helped enact policy that you may like. Donald Trump lives in the modern era. But, for instance, a liberal against leftism appreciates and reveres the accomplishments of our founding fathers, even though many of them held slaves, and slavery is deeply evil. A liberal against leftism judges everyone on the content of their character and not on the group to which they happen to belong by dint of their skin color, gender, religion, sexual orientation, or otherwise. Therefore, a liberal against leftism should firmly reject the disease of identity politics, which only furthers the misguided notion that inequality of outcome is somehow exclusively related to genetic characteristics that we are born with, which couldn't be further from the truth. 
As I've said before on the show, not all inequality is the result of an inequity. This does not mean that social and racial racial justice aren't goals worth pursuing, although I should mention that a liberal against leftism sees a huge distinction between protesting and rioting and would never make excuses for the latter under any circumstances. With that said, justice for all people around the world is indeed a classically liberal ideal. However, a liberal against leftism understands that disparities that exist between groups of people cannot all be blamed on a faulty system, but have a lot to do with the emphasis one puts on education, the culture in which an individual is raised, and the values that are taught to that individual. This is why it is inherently a leftist notion, for instance, that we boycott, divest, and sanction the state of Israel. Israel is the only country in that region of the world that maintains a thriving democracy. The two million Muslims who live in the state of Israel live with more civil rights than they do in any other country in the region. The Western leftist, however, sees Israel in the same flawed Marxist light as they see the United States. This basically means that because we live with relative economic prosperity in comparison to the non-Western world, that disparity must be due to our allegiance to an exploitative system and not due to the cultural, educational, and ideological priorities of those other nations. A liberal against leftism understands this distinction and therefore acknowledges the greatness of Western culture and the net positive that it has had on the world. A liberal against leftism acknowledges the fact that billions of people around the world have risen out of abject poverty due to the adoption of Western values, including capitalism, which enables one to own what they create. Likewise, we would never tarnish that legacy in favor of a narrative that only focuses on the atrocities that occurred in the process of building Western civilization, to which there are many. Liberalism is about learning from the atrocities, making amends for them, correcting course, and continuing to more closely adhere to the values set forth in the Constitution, which a liberal against leftism understands is the greatest document man has ever put to paper. Now, you may be saying at this point, this all sounds pretty conservative to me. Wrong you are. All of the aforementioned principles were once widely held by the majority of American liberals, and I believe that most of them still are. But with that said, there are many big D democratic principles that a liberal against leftism should or could support. For one, unlike with conservatism, being a liberal means that you probably don't adhere to the biblical interpretation of right and wrong. And therefore, you don't put stock in the idea that traditional standards in regard to lifestyle are necessary to maintain a healthy and thriving society. This classic liberal ideal would typically manifest in an unwavering support for things like same-sex marriage, transgender rights, including but not limited to allowing the trans community to use the bathroom of their choice, support for affirmative action policies, criminal justice reform, legalization of marijuana, leniency in regard to immigration, etc. A liberal against leftism should or could also support traditional big D democratic economic policies like higher taxes on the wealthy, higher minimum wage, government subsidies to cushion the middle class, etc. Other principles that a liberal against leftism should or could support include gun regulation, 
support for unionization, a robust public education system, and of course, a government-run universal healthcare system. You do not have to support all of these things, but I'm drawing a distinction here between a liberal against leftism and a conservative in terms of policies that they may support. Now, there are certain issues that I personally lean more libertarian on. Some of these we will eventually have a full discussion about on the show. For instance, I believe all drugs, yes, all drugs, Granny, should be decriminalized by the federal government. I believe prostitution should be legal in all 50 states, and that it's asinine, frankly, that only one state in the nation, Nevada, has legalized prostitution. I have my reasons for supporting these things, and they are not because I do drugs or visit prostitutes. But again, we'll get into that on another day. I could not, however, call myself a full-on libertarian because, one, I strongly support gun regulation, something that might actually get me shot if I talked about it at a libertarian convention, and two, I support universal health care, which a true libertarian would say is nowhere to be found in the Constitution. Both of those things preclude me from taking part in the greater libertarian movement. A liberal against leftism, however, should have no problem supporting these policies. Now, Jay, here's where I got to get to some more controversial items that I believe are included in being a liberal against leftism. Okay. Ready for it? Let's go. A liberal against leftism recognizes that men and women are biologically different and that this is a good thing. For thousands of years of human history, there has perhaps been no sentence more powerful for a woman struggling to get her kids under control than, I'm going to go get your father. This is because men are biologically designed to be more intimidating than women. That doesn't mean that women can't be intimidating also or can't be more physically inclined than a man. My wife works out for a living, for instance, and is much stronger than I am physically. But only a leftist would discount the biological differences that exist between men and women. When my kids feel scared or intimidated by something, they want me. When they are feeling sick or emotionally sad, they want mommy. This isn't due to toxic masculinity, as some leftists may claim. It's due to biology, science. Please do not confuse what I'm saying here. I supported same-sex marriage before virtually anyone in government did. Children of same-sex couples have so far been established to have generally the same outcomes in life as everyone else. But once again, this does not mean that men and women are biologically identical or that they serve identical purposes in society. It is because of this that a liberal against leftism would fundamentally reject the idea, for instance, that biological women should play on men's sports teams, as people on the far left have been contemplating for years. A liberal against leftism doesn't think there's anything remotely controversial about the fact that men and women have different physical capabilities generally. Two things could be true at once. We can support and encourage a biological man or woman who in their heart believes themselves to be the opposite sex. I personally am completely indifferent to how one wishes to live their life. And we can simultaneously say that the sex to which one is born determines certain physical and biological characteristics of that person. We do not have to adopt the the leftist notion that men can simply be women and women can simply be men, thus throwing out thousands of years of the biological meanings attached to those terms. On this topic, it is also worth noting that millions of people around the world are happily married today because of so-called toxic masculinity, or as a liberal against leftism would call it, biology. 
For thousands of years of human history, men have been aggressively pursuing a mate, and women have played hard to get. Now, this is not to be conflated with rape culture or advocating for aggressive sexual behavior on behalf of men. No always means no. But a liberal against leftism recognizes that the normal biological scenario that has played out for thousands of years of human history, whereby the man chases the woman around and sometimes does seemingly stupid things to get her attention, is not necessarily a bad thing. In the end, the moral purpose of a man is to protect those who are more vulnerable, namely his wife and his children. And that instinct to protect is partially responsible for the whistling from cars and the bar fights and the chest pumping, even if I personally despise all of that behavior. As Jay will happily tell you, I am about as metrosexual as a man can get. That's true. Yeah. In closing... Liberalism dictates that you do not have to agree with every, th every single thing I just said. Leftism, on the other hand, leaves very little room for diversity of thought and then goes the extra step to try to enable government and our cultural institutions to cram down their belief system on everyone else. If you reject that notion but also subscribe to classically liberal ideals like I do, especially the general concept of live and let live, if it ain't putting me in any danger, I don't care what you do, you may just be a liberal against leftism as well. Thank you for listening. Wow, Riz, that was an incredible study into the ideology of your positions. And unlike Demi Lovato, actually brave of you. Oh, thank so, you, Jay. Thank you. Thank, yeah. thank you for that. I'm, I'm yeah. sure everything is dumb. Didn't expect such a thorough answer. Yeah. Now, I want to say one thing, because as I was as I was sort of uh, reciting that whole thing, I realized mm -hmm. that somebody out there is going to misconstrue what I'm saying about the toxic masculinity thing. I'm and sure. um, yes, somebody will, will for, for sure. I think I said this at the very beginning of our podcast journey, like probably in one of the first episodes, that um, men behaving like pigs and the fact that they're evolving out of that because of societal pressure to evolve out of that is a really good thing. Mm -hmm. I was just giving a I wanted to point out the biological reasons yeah, biology that those, thing, that those things exist. Right, yeah, right. I don't think I'm not issue. advocating for that. And in fact, I really do think, and I think I said this on the show, like the things I said and did as a 20 or 21 year old, yeah. I have to imagine if I was a 20 or 21 year old now, I wouldn't, I, I would think twice before doing those Agreed. things because, it's, because it's standards a, it's, have it's about Yeah, it's, it's about societal uh, norms and acceptability right. and that's yeah. a good thing is what i'm saying yeah. like I'm with that. everyone behaving better is always a good thing so um, yeah that that's all i wanted to clarify in that whole no thing, that was fantastic i really enjoyed excellent. that and and you know you can actually see when you say that and people that have been listening to the podcast a long time where we would agree and where we would disagree it's it was totally, an interesting totally. that's why i tried yeah. to put it all in there that's great and i i think i got it and i also think i'm going to send it to editor-in-chief clay cogman for it to go up on our media venture, which will be yeah. coming by the end of the year. Indeed. I'm going to send it to a friend of mine that I got in a Facebook tiff with uh, just yesterday and uh, needed a little bit of that because okay. uh, she falls into the, uh, you know, the ladder. Category? The, yeah. yeah. Uh -huh, uh -huh. <laughs> All right. So uh, the final debate uh, between Biden and Trump took place last week. So for the last time for probably a good two years, at least, we're going to hit up one of our favorite segments that we brought in recently. This is Cut Me Mick.
All right. So uh, first of all, for all of you out there who are just amazed at the new tone that uh, Trump had during this debate. So much new tone. So much new toning. Um, let me remind you that he is the first president in history who required a third party to physically mute his microphone so that he could uh, miraculously strike this new tone. Yeah. So in other words, uh, the new tone was artificial. And um, you know, I could look like Rocky Balboa, too, if I got a high end steroid regimen injected into me every day. You yeah, know, that would it's, do it's it. It's not fair. Yeah. yeah. Um, also, the other thing we wanted to say before we started this segment was that we were going over our outline today and we were both sort of like, when yeah, did that debate happen? That, that Two debate years ago? is so water under the bridge now. No one's talking. The media is not talking about it. No, no one cares. It didn't move the needle at all. And that's why we are going to make this extremely short and sweet. We're not even going to play clips. We're just yeah. going to basically give our assessments of the whole thing well, because we'll we felt on. like we had to as a political yeah. podcast. But let's face it. No one cares. And we've all moved done so anyway uh my thought Kristen welker the moderator uh she yeah. did a, a reasonably Fantastic. good job yeah really good yeah um what did you think jay tell me your entire assessment so i don't think there's much to say here what i do find interesting is how this relates to what ben shapiro said a long time ago at this point or at least what feels like a long time ago he said in the pittsburgh gazette quote to understand this election does not require a graduate course in political science if the election is a referendum on mr trump he will lose if the election is a referendum on joe biden he will lose mr trump is personally unpopular by every poll metric and he has been consistently unpopular for years but he was still able to win in 2016 because hillary clinton was even less popular the same could be held true here and on twitter he said this election has always been simple if it's a referendum on trump he loses if it's a referendum on biden he loses biden understands that math Trump seems not to understand it at all, and so insists on remaining the center of attention come hell or high water. This debate, because Donald Trump finally shut the F up, was a <laughs> referendum on Joe Biden, and in my eyes, it wasn't that pretty. Now, it doesn't justify the things we made very clear that Donald Trump has done, but I say this all the time, and I'll continue to say it tonight. I don't think either candidate is a great choice. There's just one better than the other, not unlike the last election. It's a plague on both your houses. It's It's a true travesty, and this debate to me showed just that. But it's an interesting study to see what happens when Trump, now, as you mentioned, actually on a leash, strapped to a buzzer like in the beginning of Ghostbusters, actually steps to the side of the spotlight for 30 seconds, or is forced to, and the entirety of the campaign momentarily changed their rhetoric to, did you know you could change your vote? And guess what? The media coverage changed for a split second as well. Right. It was absolutely too little too late. And unfortunately, just a dust speck in what has been a campaign full of dirt. But it was an interesting study and unfortunate for the Trump campaign because it was a microcosmic moment into how they could have won the election. Yeah, I, I mean, um, you know, you were saying to me, Jay, that uh, while the debate was going on, you texted me and were like, I just, you know, Biden just seems old and yeah, doddering just and just I'm not excited about it. Yeah. Um, you know, I, and even from just what your assessment that you just read. I still have a, the the pushback I would give is that I still have a very 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 hard time making any comparison between Trump and and uh, Biden and so the the pox on both your houses in this case doesn't work for me mm -hmm. because I just don't I think the distinction is just too wide to use the pox on both your houses I just don't you know even during this debate Trump lied most of it. Uh, he was terrible. You know, even measured Trump is not good and, and off the wall and says things that don't add up and, you know, had a few zingers in there, but nothing really great. Biden, at least, is honest and and he's a good person, at least to me. Um, yes, he's old and doddering, but I just don't see how you can make that um, 
comparison and be like, oh, they're both bad. I can explain yeah. it a little bit. Okay. When, when Biden spoke and he had the chance to hear, yeah. he did not give substantive answers. I'm aware that he might be capable and yeah. is definitely more capable than Trump, but mm-hmm. he had the opportunity to give answers, proper answers, and he blew yeah. it. Half the time he went on the attack and fought Trump's positions without mentioning yeah. his own, and half the time he mumbled his way through a non-answer. It was a moment he could have stolen, and instead, yeah. I think he ended up looking pretty incapable and unqualified. And I know yeah. he's not that, but it's just how it, it's how it looked. Yeah, it's funny. It's it's at this point, I wish I could recall the entire debate, <laughs> but I've already put it in the back of my head. But I will say one thing. Biden's answer, I guess we could do a little Biden whisperer here, if you will. Sure. Yeah. Um, because Biden has been consistently giving the wrong answer on the court packing question. Sure. Because that keeps coming yeah, up. It's a and good, he, it's a good he sort of flubs yeah. it and doesn't do it right. In honor of our first segment inside of segment, which is going to be the Biden whisperer, we're not going to give you music or anything like that. Yeah. Um, the correct answer to uh, when, the, when the press asks him, are you planning to pack the court, which is going to be a very controversial thing for people on the right, the correct answer would be something to the effect of Republicans have been engaging in their version of court packing for years all over the country, packing the courts with ideological judges that will rule on issues important to them. Uh, if I become president, I will put together a committee within the first week of my presidency made up of legal scholars with the intent to restore balance to our judicial system. How that materializes is not something I can comment on at this moment. You know, that would be a good way of punting on the question. It's an answer. uh, Yeah, it's punting on the question of if you will specifically pack the court and pivoting to the broader concept of restoring balance. I mean, so much of being a politician is pivoting. Uh, mm-hmm. When there's a question that you don't want to answer directly, you yeah. can sort of sidestep it. Where yeah, you're, deny you're the not, premise of the question. There's an, there are a number of ways yeah. to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Right, right. And like you said, Jay, uh, I think this was either last week or the week before, you are for balance on the court. I absolutely so, am. In, right. in, all of, in all of government, I am for balance. I think that's the way we're designed and the way we work best as a country. Right, me too. So, so And that's why I think he wouldn't turn anyone off by by saying that, yes, the right wing media will be like, well, that's still not an answer. Is he going to add more people or not? But he right. could just I think Joe Biden's downfall is that he's never very he's never steadfast in his, mm-hmm. you know, he he wavers a little bit and he he gets a little too wishy washy. He he needs to be a little bit more direct and just say, like, Agreed. I'm not answering the question of whether I'm going to, quote, pack the court yeah. because of X, Y and Z. And, you know, I'm going to put together a uh, committee. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. and, and, and we'll figure this out. It. I yeah. agree. Honestly, think he could take a, a, uh, a, a note from, uh, Amy Coney Barrett there because yeah. she did this all the way through her, her hearing. She was like, look, yeah. I don't know which way I'm going to fall until yeah. it's in, in the context of the situation. Well, because she's a lawyer and she knows that that's the way you do it. But she was yeah. very direct about it. And I right. think he could do the same. I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. No, he could use a little more of that, but you know what? The truth of the matter is it's all water under the bridge. You're not going to have to see Biden debate anymore. He has no one else to debate at this Correct. point. So even us sitting here giving him advice really does does no, no good because I don't think Biden is coming out of the basement for the next five days or so. That's for sure. Uh, there's no reason to. Why would no. he? He's, yeah. he's doing well. So um, yeah, uh, that's pretty much all I have on this segment. Anything else to add? That's all I got. All right. Well, let's go on to another segment. So there's a Ben Shapiro clip that's been going around for the last couple weeks. He recorded a video of himself entitled, I didn't vote for Donald Trump in 2016. I am in 2020. Here's why. The video is worthy of note because it has 22 million views. 
Uh, again, this is probably the most influential conservative commentator in the world right now, Ben Shapiro. Uh, so that does mean something. Now, I'm sure there are a certain number of people who watched this video and were on the fence about Trump and perhaps changed their mind. I should also say that Shapiro gets high-level administration personnel on his show. Mm -hmm. uh, a couple weeks ago, he had Mike Pence. So those kind of interviews do not come without a price. And the price is likely that he was asked by the administration to make a final pitch for them. Yeah, there's there's some inconsistencies there that I think that, you know, in his rhetoric yeah. that he's been speaking against Trump, mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden he sort of pivots. It's it's an interesting dynamic. I'm not we'll sure get to that, exactly sure. what's going on. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I think you're right. You know, and I don't know that for a fact, but I'd be sure. very surprised if that didn't happen, if the mm -hmm. GOP wasn't like, hey, nudge, nudge, you know, give us one Do more us shout solid. out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, anyway, uh, he makes claims in this video that I believe are easily rebutted. And he also leaves out two very important things that are pivotal to this election. So we thought this would be a good piece to debate with Ben. Here is our very popular segment brought back from the dead, virtually debatable. Virtually so, getting right into it, here is how Ben introed the video. I did not vote for Donald Trump in 2016. I am voting for Donald Trump in 2020. There are three reasons I'm going to vote for Donald Trump in 2020 when I didn't four years ago. First, I was simply wrong about Donald Trump on policy. Second, I wasn't really wrong about Donald Trump on character, but whatever damage he was going to do has already been done, and it's not going to help if I don't vote for him this time. And third, most importantly, the Democrats have lost their f***ing minds. Okay, so Shapiro has three contentions here for why he's voting for Trump. Number one is basically that Trump governed a lot more conservatively in terms of policy than he expected. And in fact, he governed pretty much like any Republican would have. Uh, we're going to go through in more detail, and I'm going to try to poke holes in some of this analysis because I think personally the, that the so-called policy achievements are overblown. Um, his second reason for voting for Trump is the idea that we already know Trump's personality and his flaws, and supposedly that's not going to do any more damage to the country since it's already baked into the cake. Uh, his third reason for voting for Trump is that the Democrats are crazy. Now, my opinion on his three reasons is that only one of them is a legitimate excuse to consider voting for Trump, albeit a flawed one at best. Uh, one of the reasons is a total abdication of everything that conservatives are supposed to stand for on principle. And the last reason is a Fox News slash right wing media talking point that doesn't jive with reality. So let's get into it. Shapiro, go. So first of all, Donald Trump has governed pretty conservatively. I thought he would not be conservative in his governance. I was just wrong on that. Donald Trump radically cut regulation. He actually saw reductions in the number of man hours dedicated to dealing with regulation for the first time in a long time under Donald Trump. He appointed originalist judges to the best of his ability. We're talking dozens of them, textualist originalist judges who actually care about the role of the judiciary. He cut taxes, jogging the economy, raising it to heights not seen in half a century, the lost unemployment rate in half a century, people having their wages rise at the bottom of the spectrum. He appointed pro-life people to the executive branch and pursued pro-life policy via executive order. He dumped out of the idiotic Paris Accords, which were useless and counterproductive. He dumped the even more idiotic and evil Iran deal, which gave money to the Iranian mullahs to use for terrorism, as John Kerry freely admitted. Donald Trump crushed ISIS. He killed al-Baghdadi. He killed Qasem Soleimani. 
Donald Trump is the first president of my lifetime not to start any new wars, which is a kind of big thing. He moved the American embassy in Israel to Jerusalem. He brokered the first meaningful peace deals there in three decades in the Middle East. He cracked down on China in unprecedented ways. He's resisted using the federal government to control everybody's life during COVID. That's a big thing. This is the biggest government power grab of my lifetime. And Trump refused to do it. Donald Trump restored due process on college campuses because he actually cares about due process, or at least his secretary of education does. Contrary to popular opinion, Donald Trump has not actually threatened the institutions. The fact is that Donald Trump may have been hemmed in by his own people. Whatever the rationale, he has not threatened the press. He has not threatened the legislature. He has not used the executive branch in nearly as powerful ways as Barack Obama did. Trump hasn't been as conservative as I would like on everything. He's spent way too much money, like oodles too much money. I actually care about that stuff. His perspective on trade is a zero-sum game. I think it's wrong-headed. He still signed into law the USMCA, which is a pretty good trade deal. But these are problems I've had with a variety of Republicans, including George W. Bush. Trump has governed overall in a far more conservative fashion than W on policy. He is the most conservative president of my lifetime on policy. So, Jay, uh, I have a lot to say on this one because I have to break that all down. Do you mind if I go and then just chime in if you have other things to uh, to add here? Yeah, go for it. Okay. So uh, Shapiro mentions regulation first. Yeah. Uh, he cut regulation, as any conservative would. I, I don't always think that's useful, but this is a classic conservative pro-business agenda item that would have gotten done in the exact same fashion if Marco Rubio were president. You agree, Jay? Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I think we could have had the policies without the insanity. Right. So if you look at the graph of regulation between Republican and Democratic administrations, it goes up with Democrats and down with Republicans. Now, you know, after the election, we'll do a full topic of the day on the importance and the ramifications of regulation and the damage of overregulation, uh, which we already touched on a little bit. If you remember our interview we did with Santa Monica Pete. Yeah, uh, a very popular interview. Exactly. You should go back and listen if you haven't. But the point is that to say that Trump's presidency was unique in the amount of regulation he cut is wrong. It's just not true. Any pre- any Republican president would have done that. Next, the appointment of originalist judges. Yes, Donald Trump does have a record number of judges. But yeah. this, again, is the work of Mitch McConnell and not of Donald Trump. McConnell has openly said this was his greatest agenda item. Uh, would have happened with any other Republican president. Uh, McConnell would have made sure of that. Also, like I've said in the past, conservatives hang their hat on the idea that judges are going to get them everything they want, and they are almost always disappointed. I I don't believe Amy Coney Barrett's tenure is going to be much different. I mean, I don't think she's going to strike down the Affordable Care Act. I don't think she's going to strike down Roe v. Wade or overturn Roe v. Wade. Uh, So I guess there's an argument to be made that it's kind of silly for conservative America to hang their hat so firmly on originalist judges, I don't think it has much of an impact on one's everyday life in America. I think it's sort of something that helps conservatives sleep at night, but doesn't put more money in their pockets or change their lives in any meaningful way. It's a culture war thing. I mean, do you agree, Jay? What do you think? I completely agree. I think it's it's sort of a stopgap. It's like, uh, if everything else goes to pot, then at least we have the Supreme Court to stop any craziness, which, by the way, does help me sleep at night, but I don't think that they are going to push a legislative agenda for the Republicans the way that they market. Right. And I think that that, that that's the issue here. I think. And by the way, I, I think it's also like, you can't time this out. Uh, right. You don't know when a, a Supreme Court justice is going to die. It's right. a lot of its chance. So very, very true. And and also, I mean, even if they did, even if they did push or, or help push out legislation for the GOP, 
is that going to really change anyone's life? Like the fact that there are more conservatives on the Supreme Court, does that end up being everyday real world changes for the American populace? No, no. It's very rare. It's very rare, at least. And again, um, if you are excited about the the notion that maybe Roe v. Wade gets overturned, I think um, you should loosen that excitement a little because I really don't think that's going to happen. And I've read that now from a ton of of high end conservative commentators and scholars who say it's not going to happen. So stop thinking it's going to happen. Exactly. Right. Anyway, uh, next we'll move on to tax cuts, which, uh, which Ben mentioned in his little monologue there. Uh, again, the, the, the number one agenda item for virtually every Republican from Paul Ryan to Ted Cruz. Okay. It's tax cuts. Uh, nothing uniquely Trump about these tax cuts. No, this goes before everything else on the Republican agenda, no matter who the president is. Yeah. Yep. So, uh, but but what I what I do want to talk about is Shapiro's claim that the tax cuts in and of themselves jog the so-called quote greatest economy in history. So this is according to the Wall Street Journal, not exactly a left-wing publication. Okay, quote: Not everyone has benefited equally from the Trump tax cuts and jobs plan. While the latest savings data aren't broken down by income, economists say the recent rise in income is likely being driven by the wealthy. The journal reports, noting that an estimated three-fourths of the increase in savings since the tax cut took effect has benefited the wealthiest 10% of Americans. So let's get one thing straight here, Jay. The wealthiest 10% of Americans is who benefited most. I'm not saying that doesn't matter, and I'm not saying that the other 90% didn't see any benefit, Mm -hmm. but let's see what kind of benefit it was first, okay? Let me continue. So past reports have found that the tax cuts disproportionately helped the richest Americans, although individual ta- uh, individual income taxes as a percentage of personal income fell slightly from 9.6% to 9.2% between 2017 and 2018. According to the Congressional Research Service report, the rich still benefited more than others. Most of the tax cut went to businesses and higher income individuals who are less likely to spend the increases. Now, this is something we will talk about in depth next season. We promise we're going to go over economic theory. But, you know, the idea that these tax cuts help the wealthy, which is not altogether bad, but then the idea that that money doesn't end up trickling down into the rest of the economy and just gets sort of hoarded is something that is controversial that the left has been talking about for years, and we should discuss that more. Now, let me continue one more time here. While the wealthiest 20% of families in the U.S. saw their post-tax income increase by 2.9% on average after the cuts, middle-income earners just saw a 1.6% increase per TPC. A family that makes a... Now, this is the kicker. A family that makes $100,000 per year saw an average yearly tax benefit of around $1,500. Now, I don't want to sound like a coastal elite here, Jay, but is $1,500 extra in your account a year changing your life? I mean, again, I I don't want to sound like I'm discounting the value that $1,500 might bring Mm -hmm. to somebody's life, but are you buying a new car with that? I mean, are you taking more vacations? If so, I'd like to know where you vacation. 
it's not substantive, but honestly, as an independent contractor, mm-hmm. some of the things that he's allowed, and it's more ha- it more has to do with deregulation than it has to do with uh, tax cuts, tax per, cuts. S- per se. Right. But they they have made more of a difference in my personal life. I'm not saying that that is multiplied uh, yeah. by however many. But I to get back to your point, no. If someone has fifteen hundred extra dollars, you know they're 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 paying for groceries a little easier. But that's probably about it. Maybe, yeah. You know, and and you know, again. I don't want to channel my inner Nancy Pelosi here because no, she, she, that. Yeah. she she got in trouble. If you remember, after the mm-hmm. tax bill was was passed, she made a comment that oh, the Republicans are giving some of the crumbs back to Americans, and the right wing media went nuts because sure. they were like, she, you know, this is more proof that the Democrats are out of touch with the American people. She thinks they're crumbs, but you know, you know, I I mean, I understand the theory that when corporations get tax breaks that theoretically enables them to hire more workers or pay mm-hmm. their current workers higher salaries. But we also know that that doesn't always work out that way. A lot of times the corporate tax cuts end up enriching the board of the company and not the workers. Correct. I mean, we know this. Bernie Sanders has been railing against that for years and years and years, right? And I'm not saying he's altogether right. Like, I think a good combination of trickle-down economics and middle-out economics is, is, is probably to the benefit of the American people. But all I'm saying here is that these tax breaks – uh, there's no there's no proof that it furthered the the great economic goals of yeah, the, the, uh, the of the individual yeah. everyman exactly mm-hmm. right yeah. so further the idea that Trump takes the credit for the thriving economy is dubious at best so the LA Times had an article the other day entitled Trump versus Obama who has the better record on the U.S. economy okay uh, Jay, you will find this interesting. Everyone should really listen to this because for those Trump voters who are saying they vote for, with their pocketbook, which a lot of people say, this should be interesting for you, okay? Uh, and this article literally just was two days ago in the LA Times, okay? Here's a section from that article. President Trump's main closing argument is that he deserves four more years because he over, oversaw, quote, the greatest economy in the history of our country. But even looking at the three years before COVID-19 made a mess of things, the U.S. economy under Trump performed about the same as it had during the last three years under President Obama. On some economic measures, it was a little worse, on others, a little better, but on the whole, not markedly different. And it was a far cry from the best ever. Consider this. Under Obama, from 2014 to 2016, real gross domestic product the broadest measure of economic activity, grew at an average annual rate of 2.5%. In Trump's first three years, 2017 to 19, real GDP expanded by an annual average of 2.6%, according to the Bureau of Economic uh, analysis. So that's 0.1% greater under wow. Trump. Okay. Yeah. In December 2017, Trump had talked about GDP rocketing to four, five, and maybe even 6% or higher. But despite his big corporate tax cut, GDP growth didn't come close to reaching the average yearly gains of 4% in the 1990s and twice that in the early 1950s. On employment, the U.S. economy added 6.6 million jobs in Trump's first three years, shy of the 8.1 million payroll gains in the last three years under Obama. Trump has often bragged about his record on production jobs, which has particular appeal to his working class base and to voters in the Midwest. But even here, the difference isn't much at all. Okay, check this out. From the end of 2016 to the close of 2019, the nation added 
added 1.27 million jobs in the blue-collar industries of construction and manufacturing, although uh, although factory jobs flattened in 2019, thanks in part to Trump's trade war with China. So even that trade war had negative effects on certain sectors of the economy. Sure, makes sense. Yes. That compared with 1.13 million construction and manufacturing jobs gained from 2014 to 16, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. So again, we're really not talking about that much more. It's very, very comparable. Mm -hmm. Now, it's true that the nation's unemployment rate fell, and and Shapiro says this in his thing, the nation's unemployment rate fell to a half-century low of 3.5% before the coronavirus outbreak in March. And that and it's also true that jobless those jobless figures for Latinos, blacks and Asians also dropped to the lowest level on record. Now, you would expect that because when the unemployment level is 3.5, it goes down for everyone. So mm-hmm. the idea that Trump did something specific for Latinos, blacks or Asians is uh, there's no there's no actual well you know it's interesting that he he always points to the numbers but never tells you how he got there there's probably a reason for that exactly jay very good point continuing on but economists note that the actual change in unemployment rates over the respective three-year periods was bigger under trump than uh, i'm sorry was bigger under obama than under trump so in closing here sorry but the idea that trump saved the u.s economy is it's not true. It's just simply not true. Okay, so uh, then Shapiro, do you have anything else to add on there, Jay? No, I think you covered that yeah. very, very specifically. Yeah. Good thing Good thing I, I had the article handy. Good thing you read. Yeah. I read, yes, yes. You got to do the research. You can't just take what, what, what Trump says out of his mouth and, 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 and think that oh, that's God fact. Forbid. Yeah, no, no. yeah. So uh, then Shapiro uh, mentions in that clip we played you that he got out of the, quote, Trump got out of the, quote, useless Paris Accord, which to me, and this is my opinion, Mm -hmm. it's only useless if you're somebody who denies that the existence of climate change. I mean, I know that the deal was widely panned as being harder on the U.S. than it was on other countries. But in my mind, I mean, call me crazy, call me a a crazy leftist, but anything we could do to collectively reduce the amount of CO2 in the air is probably a good thing, right? Uh, Yes and no. I did not like the Paris Accords. I think that each country has its specific issues and they all need to be addressed as such. I think that uh, the Paris Accords kind of, there's a lot of broad strokes and generalities. And by the way, like it didn't take into effect what is the spending effect on the United States. I think that we are in a better position to patrol uh, the the climate change issues and control our therefore control the government spending that it's going to take to get there and and so that's why I'm not for a generalized uh, worldwide convention on this particular topic. Right, I take your point on that, and and that's a very sort of uh, prototypical, um, or I should say, that's a very uh, stereotypical uh, mm-hmm. response from from a GOP. You could be you could be in Congress as a GOP member. They were but all saying me. a very similar thing, right? But I don't, the point is, I don't believe that Trump understood the deal. And, and I think that this was yet another one of Trump's attempts to sort of vindictively reverse a signature achievement of the Obama admin. I hear you know, that. That, that, that. That's that's the way I took it. So I, I scratched that one off the list. I, mm-hmm. I just don't think, again, did that make a difference in anyone's life? No. Did yeah. it put more money in anyone's pocket? No. no. So the, 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 the fact that you would list that as achievements, I, I don't get it. So then uh, Ben makes the claim that Trump, quote, crushed ISIS. Now, this is, of course, is belied by the Washington Post article from literally last week entitled 
ISIS attacks surge in Africa, even as Trump boasts of a 100% defeated caliphate. So that claim isn't even true. He made headway with ISIS, Mm -hmm. but he by no means crushed it. So uh, we could add that to the list of things that are sort of half truths. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't like the half truth there, but I do right. think that he did a better job with that specifically than Obama did. I think that's measurable. He had more time to uh, remember. Sure. I, ISIS, ISIS didn't really start cropping up till till the end of Obama. I'm sorry, term. we're talking about Obama. Yeah. ISIL, my bad. Yeah, I, ISIL, right. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, whatever. Yes, he crushed. Did he crush ISIS? No, he didn't. There's no evidence of that. He he pushed it back a little, and he didn't do his military did. Okay, sure. well, come he, on, you he know, know all the achievements they go yes. to the man, all the failures they go to the administration. Yes, yes. I I just have to throw that in. You know why I have to throw that in? Because after Obama killed Bin Laden, yeah, all the right wing pundits. You know, the, the the mainstream media was saying... I thought The Rock did that. The mainstream media was saying over and over again, Obama killed Bin Laden, and the right-wing pundits kept saying, no, Obama didn't kill Bin of Laden, course. the Navy SEALs did. Sure. So I have to throw that in as a dig, because... When when anything militarily good happens uh, on the right, they always it's always their president who yeah. did it. Mm-hmm. Trump is a freaking draft dodger. I mean, come on. <laughs> Moving on. Uh, then Shapiro talks about the one thing that both Jay and I definitely agree on, which is the significance of the Middle East peace deals. Now, as I've said before, this is the star achievement of this administration. So I'll give him that one, Jay. Is that yeah, cool with you? Uh, yeah. Absolutely. I, I think you should. And by the way, you also we also both have said on this podcast many times, we agree yeah. with his, his, his policies here, and he's done a good job in this particular arena. Right. And I'm quite sure that there are many Jewish Americans that are single issue voters and will vote for Trump just because of this. We've spoken but, to one. I mean, we, you know, Fred right. Zeidman said as much. Of course, of course. But I would I would venture to say that Middle East affairs are probably not the first thing on the average America's American's mind at the moment. Right. Yeah. I mean, a, your average American in middle America. No, are they, they have no, are they they have no really idea what's going cra- on over there. Of right. And, and even if they did, uh, is this changing their life in any way? So I understand the achievement. Um, I give them credit for this achievement. It is the one thing that I think the Trump administration did right. They have once and for all, I think, proven that the best method to go about dealing with the whole issue of peace in the Middle East, so-called peace in the Middle East, is peace through strength. Yeah, but so, look, I, uh, I do want to make a point that mm-hmm. the, the the general voter, I agree with you, does only look at what has been done for me. But this mm-hmm. is my problem with the 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 general voter. Yeah, no, I, I think they should be more educated and they aren't. And that's the scary thing about people who vote. Yeah, I, I just think that perhaps, and we'll get into this a little bit later, that this is such a heavy time with COVID and, and, yeah, and everything going that's going on, on in person, right, uh, on our shores that I just don't see somebody in Wisconsin thinking, oh, thank God Trump no, moved it, that it embassy. Doesn't move, it doesn't move right. the needle, I hear you. <laughs> right, right, yeah. okay. Um, so then Shapiro kind of haphazardly applauds Trump uh, for the lack of government overreach during the pandemic, which I want to get to later, so let's hold on that for a second. Now, the funniest claim, and Jay and I, as we were listening to this clip, we were both sort of shaking our heads. The funniest claim Shapiro makes is when he says, quote, contrary to popular opinion, Donald Trump hasn't actually threatened the institutions. He hasn't threatened the press. Okay, so um, (laughs) according to the New York Daily News, in an article on August 10th, 2020, I have a lot of articles to cite today, Jay, don't I? 
Yeah. Nearly all of CNN's high-profile reporters now require full-time bodyguards for the first time in the history of the network due to death threats. So I, I guess it's just coincidence, Jack. I, I, I'm not it's sure. It's the radical even, left. I'm not sure yeah. you even needed to mention this. Yeah. <laughs> It's so obligatory. Yeah, it, it's it's the radical left, though. It's got to be. I mean, it, you know, it has nothing to do with the fact that that Trump berates the press constantly and calls them evil and sick and the yeah, enemy. He the normalizes people, you know? that behavior. Right, right. And uh, excuse me, Ben, but he hasn't threatened the institutions. I mean, he has single handedly threatened every institution from the press to the State Department to his own FBI and CDC. I mean, Correct. give me a break. Yeah. He calls every government institution the deep state. Now, he's never gone as far as to actually do anything about it. But what drives me crazy about him is he doesn't check with anyone. He just he, he kind of like sends a little floater out into the universe. Right. And then someone will probably come in and say, uh, sir, you can't do that. And then he's like, okay, maybe I'll back up. And it doesn't yeah. ever happen, but yeah. it, that's, that, that's still not something I'm comfortable with. Right, but even even with it, 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 putting the rhetoric aside, it's actually not true that he hasn't done anything. He gutted the State Department. Correct. I mean, gutted no, he continues, it. He, he has, continues he, to get rid of anyone who's disloyal to him. Right. The morale at the FBI. Uh, he, I mean, he has with the C, with his own CDC. The he's called them idiots on yeah. tape i mean if that's not threatening the institutions i don't know what is that's I mean, fair that's, I, I take your point it's there. ridiculous that's yes mm -hmm. so then ben talks about how trump spent uh too much money for his taste now well <laughs> i would have to say well yeah i mean he increased <laughs> the national deficit to the highest level in american history now i'm old enough to remember when the chief gop talking point against obama was yeah. that he had blown out the deficit so sure. is this a have the conservatives shifted on this, Jay? They don't care about debt anymore? No, sir. We don't like spending. It okay. still exists. Because Trump spent, and I even know. to Shapiro's oh, admission, more than any, I mean, certainly not the way Republicans are supposed to conduct themselves. Not at all. And no one says anything about it. And even Shapiro mentions that sort of on page six. Shouldn't that, I mean, as a conservative, according to uh, to how they talked during the Obama administration, that, that should be on the front page. No, I take big issue. Part of the small government thing, other than overreach, is that right. we don't want a lot of money spent, which is right. the issue with taxation and all of those things. It's all together, and this is a big one. It's a very big one. Okay. So moving on to Shapiro's next reason to vote for Trump, his character, or lack thereof, this is what he had to say about that. Second, times change. When I said I wouldn't vote for Trump in 2016, I was worried about three things. One, policy. Again, I was wrong. Second, I was worried about the soul-sucking of the Republican Party to approve bad behavior, the people nodding and grinning at bad stuff Trump did. A lot of that has happened. And third, I was worried about toxicity down ballot, right? Losing House seats, losing Senate seats, blowing out the Republican Party with minorities and women and young people. A lot of that has manifested. But here's the thing. It's already manifested. And me not voting for Trump in 2020 doesn't stop that from manifesting. Like, I've been very, very clear on my feelings about Donald Trump's character. I have serious reservations, to say the least. Trump has some good qualities, right? He's a hammer in search of a nail. Sometimes he hits a nail. It's super satisfying. And sometimes he hits a baby, and it is far less satisfying. And, you know, well, well, let, I me, like let, me, let me jump out ahead of this one, if you do don't it, mind. Do it, do it, Because yeah. this is the one that, I, you know, I can get behind a lot of that first piece. I can get behind some of the third piece. This, to me is absolute bonkers that yeah. the guy's done all the damage he can do is just insane right it, and, and it doesn't even make sense i mean it, this is like you said i mean this is the most bizarre of all of the three arguments because he says 
he says there that everything he was worried about, you know, the Republicans winking and nodding at Trump's behavior and the exodus from the Republican yeah. Party by minorities has mm-hmm. happened. It's he all admits happened. it. He and admits by the it way, right there. It's the happened. Senate, the Senate seats are being lost because of, right. uh, of Trump's presidency. Right, all right. of this is going on. So, so this attitude of, oh, well, it's already happened, let's just continue on, is so wrongheaded. I yeah, mean, I when, there's a wo- yeah, when there's a wound somewhere on your body, you typically try to stop the bleeding, yeah. not leave it alone and attempt to make the wound bigger. Well, it's already cut. Right. <laughs> right, exactly. So, the, you know, the idea that the damage has already been done, so, you know, what more can go wrong is, is also likewise stupid. Because, you know, here, and here's the thing that everyone needs to think about. We haven't seen Trump yet without another campaign to run. Mm-hmm. You know, he could very well take another win as a sign that Trumpism uh, is a mandate and go further and further off the deep end, which would not just do damage to the country, but would certainly hurt the GOP in 2022. So the bottom line to me is that either you're a principled conservative or you're not. And if you are, I cannot wrap my head around how you could simply look aside here. Yeah, no, I, I, mean, I, I don't I do not understand how he says this. I don't understand yeah. how people are letting him get away with it. He's so right. rational. It, yeah, exactly. it just boggles my mind. So to me, and I think you'll agree, Jay, Shapiro's entire second reason is null and void. I'm happy to throw it at him, move on. Yeah, <laughs> null and void. Okay, so Shapiro's third reason, moving on here, is that the Democrats are bat crazy, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, this is what that sounded like. Third, and most importantly, the Democrats have lost their f-ing minds. They've lost their minds. So have members of the mainstream media, so have members of our bureaucracy, so have members of academia. These people must not be allowed the mechanisms of power. Our most crucial institutions, from corporate America to the universities, they've been corrupted top to bottom. And giving them power over your lives, more power over your lives, huge mistake. The Democrats are no longer the party even of Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama. They're the party of Bernie Sanders, and they're just wearing around the mask of Joe Biden. They're the party of Rashida Tlaib and Nilhan Omar. Joe Biden is a Potemkin village of a candidate. He is not a bulwark against radicalism. He is a facade for it. Everybody knows it. That's why Bernie is touting him as the most progressive presidential candidate since FDR. So... This is certainly the most predictable of the three reasons he has. It's predictable because the Republicans have been saying that the Democrats are radical for like 60 years. So, you know, and, and the rhetoric on this has, has only been amplified. In, the, in that clip we just listened to, um, he basically said that Biden is more radical than both Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. Now, I'm old enough to remember when guys like Shapiro were saying that Obama was the most radical president ever. Mm-hmm. Now, anyone who takes this as more than just a political talking point and actually thinks that milquetoast Joe, Joe Biden, old Joe, is going to fundamentally change the country and stomp all over the Constitution, I'm sorry, you're doing life wrong. I agree with that. But yeah. I do think that now more than ever, there are factions in the Democratic Party, call it Bernie Sanders, call it Ilhan Omar, call it AOC. Mm. Those things, while, albeit small right now, it's the first time you're really seeing this in our generation. And so that, that to me, is, is the real danger. I see a danger there in a lot of their rhetoric and the things that they're trying to put forth, whether it be Israel, whether it be the Green New Deal. Now, that, is not, that does not encompass the whole of the party. And Ben is literally just generalizing for, yeah, what, yeah. for what is a small section. But I do see some truth there. It's just not, he's not being specific or nuanced. Okay, you know, here's the thing, though, Jay. It's a, it's an insane proposition because, as I've said a million times on the show now, if the Democrats were as radical 
as the talking heads make them out to Bernie Sanders would be the nominee, right? So neither the base nor the Democratic members of Congress wanted that, Mm -hmm. right? So, and you mentioned it, you know, the AOC thing, like you hear Trump always saying in his rallies, AOC plus three. You know, the the right wing press has been developing the narrative that the four youngest and most progressive Congress people in the entire caucus are actually the ones in charge. And they've been doing that for years now. So, you know, Democrats know this isn't the case. Now, did Nancy Pelosi help tamp down that narrative by appearing on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine with them? No, that was a stupid thing for her to do. She does a lot of stupid things. that she argues with them. Right, exactly. And she knows that mm-hmm. At, right after she did that. And that was sort of in the wake of the Me Too thing. So, yeah. well, we have these new young, fresh faces, Congresswomen, and we're going to be on Rolling Stone. But she knew after that she started ignoring them and and throwing shade at them, by yeah. the way. So here's the thing. I'm going to give you guys a guarantee here. This is going to be my fir- the first Riz guarantee. The Riz seal ever. of approval guarantee. Seal of approval guarantee. Yeah, we used to say that all the time. Okay, uh, that's, that's sort of an inside joke. But uh, okay, here's the guarantee. You ready? If Biden pushes for legislation that is outside of the mainstream of where the Democratic Party has been for the last 20 years, yeah. I'll buy you all a drink. Okay. That's a, Everyone. That's a, okay? that's a you heck, can, of, heck of a deal. It's a hell of a deal because it's not going to happen. And by the way... Speaking of Bernie Sanders, Shapiro twisted Bernie Sanders' words there. Bernie said that Biden could be the most progressive president since FDR. He didn't say that he would be. Everyone's using this quote. Right. Bernie is saying that because unlike in 2016 when he refused to encourage his base to vote for Hillary Clinton, thus doing exponential damage to her campaign, he understands the gravity of this moment. It is all hands on deck. He needs to get his progressive base excited about something. So that's why he said that. He's doing what Ben's doing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, it's he's doing the other side of what Ben's doing. Yeah. Right. So next, uh, Ben goes into sort of a montage of all the things that I personally, me, Rob Leifer, hate about leftism. Now, as evident, and that's evidenced by the liberal against leftism dissertation I gave at the front of this podcast. Right. Maybe you should go back and listen to that. If rewind. You, uh, yeah, rewind. Be kind, rewind. <laughs> uh, and, and by the way, I think Ben is mostly correct in his assessment of what radical leftism is Mm -hmm. and how dumb it is. And this is what that sounded like. Today's Democratic Party is not even the Democratic Party of Barack Obama circa 2008. Barack Obama circa 2008 supported traditional marriage. Barack Obama circa 2008 was not openly in favor of packing the courts or getting rid of the filibuster. Barack Obama in 2008 used to speak about personal responsibility sometimes. Like, all of this is just gone. The Democratic Party is now the party of radicalism. The simple mandate for the Democrats is this. They now believe in cramming down their perspective on everyone they can via any force that they can control. They believe that you should be forced by law to violate your religious beliefs if it conflicts with their social views. They believe that the science says we have to destroy the free market in the name of the environment. They say that unborn babies aren't babies, that men can be women. And if you disagree with any of that, you are a bigot, you're a homophobe and you're a terrible person. They believe that your right to keep and bear arms should be heavily infringed, if not outright abolished. They believe that due process comes second to intersectional identity, that we shouldn't judge you as an individual. We should judge you based on your racial group. They believe that America is systemically racist, rooted in sin and evil, founded in 1619, not in 1776. They believe that every single disparity in America can be chalked up to racism and bigotry and America sucking. They believe in racial, sexual, sexual orientation quotas, overt discrimination. They believe in a hierarchy of victimhood. 
If you're low on that hierarchy of victimhood, you should shut up. If you're high on the hierarchy of victimhood, you can say whatever the hell you want. You will never be held accountable. They believe that economic freedom should be curbed in the name of income equality. They care far less about growth and prosperity than they do about some bizarre notion that equality is its own good. Now, there are some things in there that I think he's incorrect about. But for the most part, if someone were to say, uh, Ben, give me a list of all the reasons leftism is bad, I think he does a, a good job listing them. Okay. And and many of those things he lists, Jay, are things that both you and I have talked about and destroyed on the show, right? Correct. It's right. It, We don't need to repeat ourselves. Uh, you know, there's not things we believe in or think should be a part of this country. Right, exactly. So where he's wrong, however, is when he makes the contention that those leftist values are the values of everyone who calls themselves a liberal or a Democrat or a mm-hmm. progressive. They are not. It's an utter lie. Does a small segment of Marxist leftists exist on the political left? Absolutely. Does a small segment of actual right su- white supremacists exist on the political right? Absolutely. But it is in no way the mainstream thought of either party. Republicans get offended when everyone on the left calls them racist, right? Mm -hmm. Well, I get offended when Republicans call everyone on the left radical communists. It's insulting to people like my parents who don't hold those values but vote Democrat. Yeah, look, I I agree with you. I think the unfortunate thing here is, you know, and and again, I sort of saw this feedback loop uh, when I had this situation yesterday on Facebook, which is stupid. I should have never engaged in it to begin with. But you sort of see exactly what you just said. The people on the left call the people on the right a racist and the people on the right call the people on the left snowflakes. And you do this, you're communist, you do this to eternity, rinse and repeat. And it's just so dumb. And I think, by the way, that rhetoric comes from both both sides that you you spoke about of, of of both parties. Yeah, I do agree with that. What I what I would say, and maybe this goes back to what we've talked about a million times, the the right wing media. Yeah, that's the media. Sort of, the the, 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 right, the right wing media is so much yeah. better at the narrative building. I've talked about that a million times here. Um, that I think I would venture to say that most people who call themselves Republicans mm-hmm. in America think, believe that the mainstream of the Democratic Party is extraordinarily radical. Yeah. I do not think that most Democrats or people who call themselves Democrats are, you know, think that the mainstream of the Republican Party are racist, bigot, sexist, mm-hmm. homophobes. I just don't think that there are definitely some, I think, yeah. because there are some, you know, on both sides, right, mm-hmm. who are those extremes. But Again, we could chalk this up, I think, to the the incredible job that the right wing media does at building that narrative. It is amazing to me that they took somebody like Joe Biden and made him into this crazy radical. I mean, it's yeah. a really impressive no, thing. It's very hard it, to do. It needs I to be studied. Right. Yeah. It's literally um, taking a sleeping man and saying yeah. he's, you know, the most energetic, you know. Right. Exactly. Like he's Stalin. He's Stalin yeah. or something. Yeah. yeah. It, you know, and, and it's funny because the, the Democrats specifically picked him because they knew he would be the hardest person to pick as a rat to, to paint as a radical. And yeah. they still yeah, ended still up happening. doing it mm-hmm. and it's still happening and it's happening successfully. Republicans below, like I see Republicans on Facebook, on Twitter saying like, no way I'm voting for Joe Biden. He's way too radical. Like sure. how the hell did that happen? It's crazy. Yeah. So uh, we will let Shapiro close it up here. Uh, this was the final thing that he had to say. So here's the deal. I'm voting for Trump. You don't have to love Trump's character. You don't have to like his Twitter account to vote for him. You don't have to approve of the crazy or bad things that he says or the way he often acts. But if you care about the Constitution and economic freedom and the security of the United States, you really don't have a whole hell of a lot of choice. 
You should vote for Trump. You should certainly vote against Joe Biden and a Democratic Party that is running completely off the rails and now threatens the integrity of the republic if they are given the levers of power. Okay, so again, all I could say is that his entire argument is seriously weak. The policy achievements of the administration are standard at best and dramatically overblown at worst. The suggestion that we should just ignore Trump's personality is stupid at best and dangerous advice at worst. And the idea that the Democrats are so radical that they'd fundamentally change the persona of America forever is straight up propaganda at best and incredibly insulting to millions of registered Democrats at worst. That's it. That's all I have to say about it. You, Jay? I, I don't have much to add. I, I find right. it very odd that he did this. I think there's more to it than than we're seeing. Mm-hmm. Uh, not to play conspiracy theorist, but it, it, yeah. it struck me. It struck me odd when when I heard it. When I saw it, it was very strange. He has absolutely in the last few months gotten much more Trumpy. Yeah, um, much more, more, and, and and so that has to be. There has to be something that's going on. Um, you know, it's all hands on deck, just like with the Bernie Sanders thing. Sure. But listen, both sides do that. Okay, yep. I get it. But, you know, one more thing before we go here, Jay, before we get out of this. Okay. There are two things that Shapiro basically doesn't even mention in his entire pitch to vote for Trump. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first one is glaringly obvious. So I think you'll know what I'm talking about. The second one sh- should be glaringly obvious, but you may not be able to remember what it is. So. What's the first thing that Shapiro failed to mention in his entire pitch? Uh, probably the pandemic that's happening. Ding, 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 ding. He gets a cookie. All right. I love cookies. Yeah. <laughs> yes. COVID-19. I mean, this to me, this is like surviving a plane crash. And when people ask you to tell the story of what happened, you focus on how good the movie was when you were <laughs> that you were watching before the plane plane went down. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it's it, it's absolutely crazy. So it's a little odd that he that he barely mentioned COVID outside yeah, this, of saying it is very strange. I mean, it obviously right. has something I mean, to do with the fact that that was the, the major drop in polling the president has yeah. experienced was because of this issue. Yeah, I, I mean, outside of saying that he was proud of the fact that Trump didn't overuse his authority, like, yeah. are, are you kidding? I mean, and 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 there's a reason he didn't talk about COVID, Ben Shapiro, and you know, which is only the greatest health and economic crisis in modern history, and and it's because Republicans don't want to talk about it. It's bad for business. Sure, you know, I, I mean, that's which that's again just so, just just proves sort of what we've been talking about—that it has nothing to do with anything but but hanging out on the party line. Right, right. And here's the thing, Jay. At the beginning of this whole pandemic, you know, what is it, like eight months ago at this point? Yeah. Yeah. So Still I much. remember, I, yeah, right. I remember sort of knee-jerkingly blaming the entire thing on the Trump administration. I was, I was, I was in a very emotional place. My, my wife's business had closed. My business had basically halted. My kids were ripped out of school. And, you know, I remember people saying I shouldn't politicize this. You know, your wife was one of those people who was like, oh, I can't believe you're politicizing that. People were saying that left and right. Mm-hmm. Right. And I remember you specifically calming me down a little about it and being like, you know, Let's have the government focus on what we could do to get out of this. There'll be plenty of time for recriminations later, you know, once the dust, the dust is out. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that? I do. Okay. So here we are, eight months later. I am even more firmly convinced than I was back then mm-hmm. about the utter negligence of Trump and his administration in the wake of this pandemic. It is the greatest governmental failure in U.S. history. And, and, and honestly, in the absence of uh, a second deal, and yeah. cutting some of these benefits off for people that are struggling, I would agree. 
that's the icing on the cake. But I mean, we have evidence now. We have him on tape yes. admitting he knew how bad it was in January mm-hmm. before any of us even knew what this thing was. You know, here's the thing. Ben Shapiro has a, uh, you know, he has this radio show and he, you can call in the radio show and, and, and talk to him. Yeah. And I've been calling every day because I have this one question I really want to ask him. So I'm going to ask you instead. Okay. okay. You're the resident conservative here. So let me ask you, okay? Mm-hmm. What, uh, I can't talk question, that fast. Is that okay? Yeah, you can't. No. The question that I wanted to ask Ben is, you know, and I think this is a good exercise for everyone to do if they think they're, do, they're being, they might be partisan. Let's assume that a couple hundred thousand votes went differently in 2016 mm-hmm. and that Hillary Clinton won the election. Okay. And she's president right now, right? Now let's assume that every single thing with this pandemic panned out exactly how it panned out with, with Trump at the helm, okay? Mm-hmm. The rhetoric was exactly the same and the policy was exactly the same. So Hillary Clinton was up there talking about how the reaction to this was a Republican hoax. She was undermining her own CDC. She's on tape calling people like Anthony Fauci, her own health experts, idiots. Mm-hmm. And the policy all looks the same, which is basically they, you know, couldn't uh, they couldn't get the testing rolled out. They had no real plan. Yeah. What I wanted to ask Ben and what I will ask you is that. Hillary Clinton right now is running for re-election. She's running against, I don't know, pick your Republican, Ted Cruz, okay? Okay. Do you, could you honestly- Ted Cruz. Yeah, bearded Ted Cruz, right. Could you honestly look yourself in the mirror and tell me that you would be sitting here on your show talking about how, eh, it's a global pandemic, we can't blame this on Hillary. No, you know my answer's gonna be no. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So, because here's the thing, if your answer to that is no, you're lying, if your answer to that is yes, then you're being a partisan hack. It's as simple as that. Yeah. It's really as simple as that. Because, you know, and, and the right would have done a better job. I guarantee you, if things panned out the way they panned out under Trump with this pandemic, she would not just be impeached, but there would be, we would at least or be talking be about criminal, criminal charges. charges. Yeah. yeah, of negligence, mm-hmm. of negligence, for yeah. sure. And, you know, the other thing I want to, I want to riff on a little bit here is that the Republicans, uh, or I, I should say the right-wing media, whenever you turn on the TV, on Fox now or anything, they're always talking about Europe. They're always like, oh, but Europe's doing bad too. You know, oh, is, is Trump the president of Europe too? Is he the president <laughs> of Italy? Since when am I supposed to, Jay, maybe you could tell me, when am I supposed to look to Europe as the model of, of, of that we're supposed to follow? I mean- No, please right? don't. Press the, the, Euro- the higher taxes. Well, not there. just the taxes. All of the European governments are extraordinarily corrupt. They, they yeah. are basically bankrupt. They all have these huge- social safety nets they're run by idiots they've been run badly for no it's silly it's it's all silly it's just a talking right. it's point. a talking it really point is. and you know the funny thing is that my entire life republicans were you know leftists were always saying like look at europe and all the social safety net and republicans were like we don't want to be like europe that was a you know we're yeah. not europe we're better than europe this is the united states of america and it, it gets my blood boiling when i talk about this because whenever anyone asks one of these people well what about taiwan what about singapore what about south korea that has like under double digit deaths and we're somehow able to control this then the answer is always well those countries aren't like us oh you mean like capitalist countries that actually have uh, governments that work for the people and do that they're supposed to do and get 
under control. Yeah, I guess they're not like us. I mean, that's how I feel. So I don't want to hear about Europe. I mean, UK has a prime minister that's just as dumb as Trump is. So why is that supposed to impress me? Uh, Maybe a little. Okay, he's not as dumb as Trump, but he's a Trump-like figure. It's got a British accent that ups his... That ups his brain percentage fine, to like fine, fine. capability. To little, fine, you know, but I'm 5%. not looking to the UK thinking, oh, they did bad. I guess it's fine that we did bad too. Just the uh, yesterday, no. I was listening to Laura Ingram's so show, and she was talking about Greece and how Greece has this huge spike now, and they're shutting down Greece, mm-hmm. who's had like literally two decades, they've been, they've been uh, two forever. decades yeah. of bankruptcy. You've been to Greece? Does anyone work in Greece? Mm, <laughs> there's like three people that work in greece right so yeah. I'm, i don't want to compare myself to greece this is the united states and and anyway i'll get off that tension so anyway when the history books are written if trump loses next week there will be a lot of things written about what trump what took down trump and it will be yeah. mostly trump himself that took down trump but the biggest thing will be covid so for Agreed. shapiro to fail to mention that is pretty telling now mm-hmm. second thing that he didn't mention and i'll give you a hint jay Take yourself back to 2015. What was Donald Trump's signature policy agenda that his fans were by far the most excited about? I don't know. Getting to know what Hillary Clinton's email said. Yeah, the, the, the emails were good, right? What, what did you hear the most at every single rally? This was his signature thing that he was going to get done. Build the wall. Build the wall. Okay. Now, he's had four years to build this stupid wall. And you know something, Jay? This is going to blow your mind right here. In 21 episodes of doing this podcast, I don't think we've mentioned the wall one single time. No, I think it's the first time. This is time. the first time. And it's because nobody talks about it anymore. So to yeah. catch you guys up just a little bit, the process of building the wall has been a complete disaster fraught with failure, corruption, and stupidity, which could be like Trump's motto, failure, corruption, stupidity, right? <laughs> the wall was always a stupid idea. Jay and I were talking about this way before we even had a podcast. It was a waste of money. And, you know, I happen to be a liberal that actually cares deeply about illegal immigration and human trafficking. Uh, But the Republicans don't want to talk about how Trump failed to fulfill his greatest policy agenda. And but it even goes even further than that. Again, because he didn't get the Mexican government to pay for it. He didn't get the Mexican government to pay for it. Now, you're not that most of it's not even built. But again, I pulled an article because I'm just an article genius today. OK, yeah, you're article tangents. Yeah, I am there. Uh, so this is according to a Wall Street Journal. Again, not a left wing news outlet. This was just a few weeks ago. Trump, who made his tougher stance on immigration a key plank of his 2016 presidential campaign, has struggled to get his promised deportation machine up and running. Under President Obama, removals hit a record of 409,849 in 2012. In 2018, under Trump, 256,085 immigrants were deported. As of August of 2020, so that's just a couple months ago, the Obama administration deported roughly 32% more immigrants in Obama's first term than the Trump administration did so far, although the coronavirus did play a role in the shutdown of deportations. Wrap your head around this, Jay. Oh, Obama I, I, deported re- more illegals than Trump. Yeah, no, okay? I've seen these. I've seen this. Obama, yeah. the deporter in chief, who, uh, you know, and I knew this was happening because I'll tell you the the illegal Hispanics in my neighborhood do not like Obama. They called him yeah. the deporter in chief. Oh, but one of the great myths of Obama's presidency is that he was weak on immigration. You know, so it's crazy. This was Trump's signature thing. No one even talks about it anymore. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. Anyway, 
That is the end of Virtually Debatable. We hope you enjoyed it. Okay, so in lieu of the fact that the election is in, what, five days, Jay? Yeah. Uh, it would be weird for us to do a topic of the day today on like, you know, Roosevelt's New Deal or something. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we're going we're gonna to skip topic of the day today because the topic of the week is to get your asses out there and vote. Amen. And in the spirit of voting, my buddy Jay is here to remind all the ladies out there. Hello, ladies. That just a short while ago, you guys didn't even have the right to vote. Jay, get us buzzed on some women's suffrage. Hello, and welcome to a very special and important Buzzed History. Today we'll be discussing the history of the women's suffrage movement, a 100-year fight to win the right to vote for women. We start with a few things you might not know, including what we know as the very first and only women to vote in the colonial era. Lydia Taft, a wealthy widow, was allowed to vote in town meetings in Uxbridge, Massachusetts in 1756. The New Jersey Constitution of 1776 enfranchised all adult inhabitants who owned a specified amount of property. These laws referred to voters as he or she, and as such, women regularly voted. This came to an end in 1807 when a law was passed excluding women from voting in the state. Kentucky passed the first statewide women's suffrage law in the New Republic era, allowing voting by any widow over 21 who resided in and owned property subject to taxation for the new county common school system. In 1792, Mary Wollstonecraft wrote a pioneering book called A Vindication of the Rights of Women. In Boston in 1838, Sarah Grimke published The Equality of the Sexes and the Condition of Women, both widely circulated. In 1845, Margaret Fuller published Women in the 19th Century, a key document in American feminism that first appeared in serial form in 1839 in The Dial, a transcendentalist journal that Fuller edited. In the decades before the Civil War, in the 1820s and 30s, most states had extended the vote to all white men, regardless of how much money or property they had. In 1848, invited by reformers Elizabeth Stanton and Lucretia Mott, a group of abolitionist activists, mostly women, gathered in Seneca Falls, New York, to discuss the problem of women's rights. An estimated 300 women and men attended this two-day event, which was widely noted in the press. The results of the convention, despite a decent amount of controversy, was that American women were autonomous individuals who deserved their own political identities. But only after Frederick Douglass, an abolitionist leader and former slave, gave it his strong support. The convention produced a resolution, a declaration of sentiments that included a list of grievances and the following, quote, We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men and women are created equal, and they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Sound familiar-ish? As the convention came to a close and the 1850s approached, the women's rights movement gathered steam, but lost momentum when the Civil War began. In 1863, Elizabeth Stanton and Susan B. Anthony organized the Women's Loyal National League, the first national women's political organization in the U.S. It collected nearly 400,000 signatures on petitions to abolish slavery in the largest petition drive in the nation's history up to that time. As the Civil War ended and the 14th and 15th Amendments to the Constitution were passed, guaranteeing all citizens equal protection under the law, but defining citizens as male, and granting black men the right to vote, respectively, women's suffrage advocates believed that this was their chance to push lawmakers for true universal suffrage. As a result of this decision, these advocates actually refused to support the 15th Amendment. Out of this discussion, two factions emerged. The first, founded in 1869 by Elizabeth Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, called the National Women's Suffrage Association, thus beginning the fight for a universal suffrage amendment to the U.S. Constitution. 
the pro-15th Amendment faction formed a group called the American Women's Suffrage Association, led by Lucy Stone and Frances Ellen Watkins Harper, and fought for the franchise on a state-by-state basis. In 1873, the Women's Christian Temperance Union was established, making it the largest women's organization of the time. The group pursued women's suffrage as well, giving a huge boost to the movement. In 1878, Senator Aaron A. Sargent, a friend of Susan B. Anthony, introduced into Congress a women's suffrage amendment. More than 40 years later, it would become the 19th Amendment to the United States Constitution with absolutely zero changes to its wording. Its text is identical to that of the 15th Amendment, except that it prohibits the denial of suffrage because of sex rather than race, color, or previous condition of servitude. Eventually, the animosity between the two women's groups' factions faded, and in 1890, the two groups merged to form the National American Women's Suffrage Association, naming Elizabeth Stanton as the first president. Hoping the U.S. Supreme Court would intervene, suffragists made several attempts to vote in the early 1870s and filed lawsuits when they were turned away. Eventually, the Supreme Court ruled against them in the 1875 case Minor v. Happersett. There were a few mini-victories, as Idaho and Utah were the first states to step out in 1869 and 1870, respectively, and gave women the right to vote at the end of the 19th century. And in 1910, a few other states in the West also extended the vote to women for the first time in almost 20 years. Southern and Eastern states continued to resist, and in 1916, the NASA president, Carrie Chapman Catt, unveiled a blitz campaign that mobilized state and local suffrage organizations nationwide with focus on these two important regions. A splinter group called the National Women's Party, founded by Alice Paul, also in 1916, focused on more radical militant tactics, such as hunger strikes and White House pickets. As World War I rolled in, women had their opportunity to show just how integral they were to the heart of the country. And on January 12, 1915, a suffrage bill was brought before the U.S. House of Representatives, but was defeated by a vote of 204 to 174. President Woodrow Wilson held off his support until he could guarantee the backing of his party, the Democrats. But when another bill was brought before the House in January 1918, Wilson made a strong and widely published appeal to the House to pass the bill. The amendment passed by two-thirds of the House with only one vote to spare. On September 30, 1918, the amendment fell two votes short of the two-thirds necessary for passage. On February 10, 1919, it was again voted upon, losing by only one vote. As the general election of 1920 was fast approaching, the president called a special session of Congress, and a bill introducing the amendment was brought before the House again. On May 21, 1919, it was passed, with 42 votes to spare. On June 4, 1919, it was brought before the Senate, and after a long discussion, it finally passed, 56 to 25. Within a few days, Illinois, Wisconsin, and Michigan ratified the amendment, and other states followed suit at a regular pace until the amendment had been ratified by 35 of the necessary 36 state legislatures. After Washington, on March 22, 1920, ratification lagged for months. Finally, on August 18, 1920, Tennessee narrowly ratified the 19th Amendment to the Constitution, making it law throughout the United States. The law reads, The right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. On November 2nd of that year, more than 8 million women across the United States voted in elections for the very first time. What happened after this is pretty unbelievable. Three other states, Connecticut, Vermont, and Delaware, passed the amendment by 1923, eventually followed by others in the South. Nearly 20 years later, Maryland ratified the amendment in 1941, and after another 10 years, in 1952, Virginia ratified the amendment, followed by Alabama in 1953. After another 16 years, Florida, which figures, and South Carolina passed the necessary votes to ratify in 1969, followed two years later by Georgia, Louisiana, and North Carolina. Mississippi, however, did not ratify the 19th Amendment until 1984, 64 years after the law was enacted nationally. 
There is so much more to this story, so many names, so many important conventions and meetings, so much time, and so much moderate change that I couldn't possibly fit it all into this short segment. Do yourself a favor and look the subject up and learn about who was involved and how this happened. It's important stuff. Read up, people. This has been another Buzzed History. Wow, Jay. Really good and uh, really nails home just um, how we should not take any of these rights for granted, right? Or or listen to Mississippi about anything. Yeah, yeah. Or ever even go to Mississippi. Sorry for our Mississippi yeah. listeners if we have any. I'm not. <laughs> 1984 right, 84 right yeah that's like the year karate kid came out it was just, uh, yeah, just yeah. insane right. all righty guys so in the spirit of this historic election uh justin and i are going to give we're going to each give our final thoughts and final appeal to you and close out season one of the down the middle podcast and we're not going to debate any of this stuff we're just going to each give our final appeal and then say goodbye to season one of Down the Middle Podcast and come back fresh after the election. So, uh, Jay, do you want to go first or should I go first? What do you think? Uh, why don't you go ahead, Riz? Okay. So this is all I got to say. Vote for Biden. I know he's old. I know he's not really exciting. For all you Bernie bros out there, I know he's not really progressive. But Biden's lack of excitement and energy is the selling point for me. As I've said before on this show, I believe Biden's presidency will be mostly rhetorical. I think the very first agenda item on day one will be to ramp up every possible institution of government to defeat and eradicate COVID-19. This has to be the first priority, and there is not a single person out there that will convince me that Trump should be more trusted than Biden in getting us through this very dark period in American history. Whether it's through mask mandates or testing or tracing, I am very confident that the adults in the room who will be at the helm of the Biden administration will listen to the experts, organize, mobilize, and lead the world again in the medical innovation that will allow us to all send our kids back to school and go back to work safely. Put it behind us. Further, if money is tight for you now, as it is for me, the chances of getting additional government relief are exponentially greater under an administration that takes this disaster seriously rather than actively downplays it, as we've seen from the Trump administration. As someone who has libertarian tendencies, as I do, I don't typically want handouts from the federal government. But remember, they drove the Mack truck into your living room, and they need to compensate you for this. A Biden administration will guarantee greater and longer compensation than a Trump administration. It's really as simple as that. Once COVID is over, I truly believe that Biden's presidency will be about healing and attempting to bring us together. I don't expect to hear much on Twitter from Joe Biden, which I'm looking forward to, and I don't expect many new controversies. In closing, another four years of the madness of Trump will cause irreparable damage to this country. And that's why you have to vote for Joe Biden, even if you're worried about him napping for four hours a day once he's president. Over and out. That was excellent, Riz, and I'm looking forward to napping four hours a day once (laughs) he's president. Yes, exactly. Go ahead. All right, listeners. It's been a rough year, and this election is very much on brand with that. I've been walking around in a daze for the past month, probably longer, attempting to work through my frustrations at the fact that these two subpar candidates are our country's choices for the highest office in the land. My appeal to you is to vote, of course, but even more important than that, I implore you to get involved in our system, 
It is the only way it will improve. We have left it to the uninspired and to the jaded, and we are all suffering, Republican and Democrat alike, for it. We need fresh blood in the game, and we need those people to be excited about how our country was designed to function, not excited to change it into something that has already been proven not to work. We need people to work hard to create moderate change incrementally, as we say here all the time. But we say that because this is how it's supposed to work. It's difficult and challenging. But that is how it's supposed to work. As you know, I believe in the Constitution. I believe in our republic. I believe in balance, and I believe that we can always be better and work towards a more perfect union. I also understand that the vote I'm suggesting you cast is for someone who does not believe in my ideology. For someone who will more than likely increase spending, increase taxes, change our foreign policy, etc. But I am bolstered by the idea that this process, our process, not necessarily the man in office, is what makes our country truly great. I will not mourn a Trump loss. The bottom line is that the Republicans let the devil in the door and therefore deserve to lose. And while I know without a doubt that our hearts and minds will be better off without him, I truly hope that our system will be as well. The jury will be out on that. With that said, what I will mourn, however, is the Republican parties and therefore the ideology's loss of power. I will mourn the legislative changes I believe the Democrats will make, no matter how minor. And I will pray that the Republicans maintain the Senate, so that there is at the very least a semblance of balance over the next two to four years. So I am appealing to you to vote for that. And I will also pray that this shift will reset the Republican Party so that in four years, we can have candidates we can be proud about. A Biden presidency will not sway my personal political ideology, just as the Trump presidency has not. And it won't stop me from fighting for the country I believe this can be. This country will cease to exist without your involvement, passion, and excitement to engage. It's the reason we were compelled to create this podcast. We wanted to get involved and to engage in our country's incredible system. The greatest in the world, we believe. And so we urge and implore you to do the same. Run for office. Speak up. Take chances. Vote and learn. Never stop learning. We are excited for the future of this podcast and for the ventures that we build out of it. And we thank you for the opportunity to secure a little space here on the internets where we can dialogue respectfully with each other and with you. And as President Bartlett liked to say on the West Wing, what's next? All right, Jay. Very, very good. That was one of, your, one of my favorite monologues from you. Thank you. Before we leave here, I think we owe it to our listeners because both of those, both of those, um, those pieces that I read and the one that you just read are uh, are very much sort of assuming that Biden is going to win, and so maybe we should give our uh, predictions right now. Sure. Yeah. So, so you know, whoever's wrong has to you know eat something gross on the air or something. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. So, so what do you think? Uh, I mean, I've been saying this for some time. Uh, at least in you know, the last month or so. Mm-hmm. I think Biden takes the presidency. I really hope that the Republicans hold the Senate, although right now the polling doesn't seem to be headed that way. There are a number of key uh, swing states that could go either way. Yeah. You know, it, it's up in the air. I mean, you know, Biden could win the, the popular vote and Trump yeah. could still win the electorate. It's, it's really, it's, it's, it's tight, but yeah. I think Biden ekes it out. You know, it's, it's interesting. Um, <clears throat> I go back and, you know, liberals... For those who don't know this, are are usually a little more bedwetty than than 
think conservatives yeah. are. Um, there, today, I felt confident Biden was going to win. Yesterday, mm-hmm. I, I really felt like Trump was going to win. Um, yeah. You know, sometimes it's just a feeling the polls are tightening in some of the battleground well, the states. states. Yeah, yeah, the battleground states are really tight. Yeah, um, they're tightening up and a few things go Trump's way and, you know, that's it. It's funny. I was listening to an interview with Nate Silver from uh, 538. He's like the head honcho over there. You know, they're the 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 ones who analyze all the polling. And he was saying how liberals come up to him in New York City all the time and want him to guarantee that Trump's not going to win. And they'll mm-hmm. be like, so Trump's going to lose, right? And he'll be like, well, he's at around 11% right now. Right, and, then, the and, and, then, and then they'll be like, well, so he's not going to win. And he's like, what do you want me to tell you? Like, I'm just a math geek. I'm not a therapist. <laughs> you know <laughs> like i can't help you feel better about this his yeah, percentage right. it's about 11 percent, which means he has around a one in nine chance of winning yeah, the so, math's on 538's page if anyone right. wants to go it's look math at it. it's math yeah. right he's like he says in this interview he's like if i if you put nine jelly beans in a in a in a jar and one of them is black what are your chances that you're gonna pick the black one that's about what trump has so he's like and then they'll still say like well, so he's not going to win. He's like, well, no, he, he has 11%. What do you want from me? And I think the pollsters are sort of ripping their hair out over that. And, and then finally he said, like, uh, he's like, and I know what's going to happen. If Trump wins, everyone's going to say, well, Nate Silver told me he, he wasn't going to win. He's like, he's like, yeah, no, I never said that. I said he had a chance. So the point is here, Trump is, according to most polling now, running around 11% chance of winning, yeah. which is not insignificant. Don't think it is. So if you don't want Trump, vote. As far as the Senate, I think it's a, it's a good chance Democrats take the Senate. They will hold the House. I think the Democrats, in all likelihood, will have all three branches of government, but I don't think they will do anything with that that will make the Bernie bros or the radical left, so-called radical left, happy and that this will upset that branch of the mm-hmm. party again, and that we will go, we will relitigate all of this again in 2024. That's what sure. I think. Yeah. Okay. That's, a good um, that's it. Anyway, guys, thank you for sticking with us. Again, it still ended up being around two hours, didn't it? I know. We, we, we it's, just it's can't, impossible. can't it's help imp- We're consistent, though. At least you should see our outline, everyone. Yeah. It was just like, it was yeah. teeny tiny. Yeah, it was like, yeah, exactly. But we talk a lot. Yeah, especially yeah. me. Um, but anyway, you get a break for for a couple weeks. We are well, going to come not back really, after the you, we're, we got to come hang out with us on the live stream. Oh right, right, the live stream. Yes, yes. Yeah. So remind us again about the live stream, Jay. The live stream, six p.m. Pacific time, Tuesday night, on our Facebook page. The yep. link is in the bio. Mm-hmm. Come hang out with us and uh, watch what happens. Yeah, it might be really annoying because my kids might be like, "Oh my god, this is something different. I got to get in there and annoy everyone." But uh, we'll see. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, thank you for sticking with us. It's been a great season. We want to thank you once again for making the Down the Middle podcast an important part of our life. It has been a life-changing experience for us. We really love it. And we love you guys who have contributed and given us feedback. It's really great. Anything else to say, Jay, before we kick out of here? No, I absolutely echo those sentiments. We're we're super lucky we get to be here and we appreciate every listener. And uh, we'll see you for season two. And finally, don't do anything crazy, America. Yeah. Nothing crazy. Let's Nothing just crazy. get Everybody the election done. I do not want to come back in two weeks and find out that everything's on fire. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Less lighters, more voting. Exactly. Less lighters, more voting. That's the theme of the show. All right, guys. Yeah. We will see you soon. Over and out. 
This has been another episode of Down the Middle, the fastest growing moderate political podcast in the nation. Go to downthemiddlepod.com to find out more info and contact us. If you send us questions, we'll answer them on air. Follow us on social media at Down the Middle Podcast on Instagram, at Down the Middle PC on Twitter, and at Down the Middle Pod on Facebook. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you are listening. Five stars, people. Five stars. All right. Good night for now. 